Thank you, Scott. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verse 22 in our time this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Over the past couple of weeks, we considered several different motivations that God gives us from His Word for living a holy life in a sin-cursed world. When you and I, with our own flesh even leading us against the truth and rebelling against our God, our own flesh seeking to just go along with the flow. And, of course, God gives us, through Peter, to these suffering believers, different motivations. What should motivate us when we wake up in the morning and we consider uh, our flesh leading us the wrong direction? What should motivate us? And, of course, Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, reminded us that um, there are several things. We looked at them. One was that Christ is going to return someday. Another was that our Father, our Heavenly Father, is holy and that we are to be holy as He is holy and that He has given us a new nature and that we actually can live victoriously over sin. We don't have to just go with the flow. We also notice the Word of God. You remember He said, it is written. And he pointed us back to the Word of God. And then he talked about the coming judgment and the place of reward and how we're going to stand before our Lord and Savior someday and we're going to be judged and rewarded for serving Him, for doing His will and the motivation with which we live our lives in this earth. They're going to be judged. And some of these things and may be a fearful thing. That may seem to be a fearful thing at first. But remember, Peter was encouraging these believers. This was an encouragement to them. Um you're living a life as unto the Lord. You're going against the flow, your flesh. Even in the face of adversity, you're doing what is right because you love God. And Peter's telling them you're going to be rewarded someday for that. The Lord sees that. Uh, your society may not um, appreciate your behavior, your actions, who you worship, who you love, but God sees it. And, uh, and that's a motivation for us to continue to live holy lives. And then, of course, the final motivation that Peter pointed out, and I think it's the greatest motivation for living a life of holiness, uh, for following Christ, and that is the love of God. The love of God, uh, the love of Christ constrains us uh, to live a life that is holy and righteous before the Lord. Uh, it's the love of Christ oftentimes in my life as I reminded of his love for me that causes me to turn away from temptation and sin and to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his love for me that constrains me. And so because he loves you and me, we love him. And it leads us to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I, I want you to notice our text. And now Peter's going to shift gears just a little bit. He's going to instruct us after reminding us of God's love for us, specifically the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's going to tell us, uh, and these believers in particular, who are suffering, he's going to command them to love one another. Now, think about that. When you're hurting, when you're hurting, how often when you're hurting do you consider how you can love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're hurting, what, are, what do we have a tendency toward? 
You can speak aloud. It's okay. What are we? What are we prone to when we're when we're the one who is hurting? Self pity, maybe anger, or at least, you know, I'm hurting here. Doesn't anybody notice? <laughs> I'm supposed to be loved because I'm the one that's hurting, right? I mean, that's the natural, very natural, a uh, tendency that we have. Peter's writing to these believers who are hurting. They're being oppressed. They're being persecuted. They're not being loved. Um, they're being rejected. And he writes to them, and now he commands them to love one another. Let's look at the passage of Scripture. And uh, we're going to take this in two parts again, just because it really is incredible. And uh, I was going to try to cram it all in, but again, chose not to. Verse 22, look here what Peter writes, that really the Spirit of God giving these words to us. He says in verse 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned or sincere love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached Unto you. Look again at verse 22. And this was where we'll spend most of our time this morning. In verse 22, again, he says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, we're really not going to get, the word, get to the word fervently until next week. And I have to say, it went against everything in me to wait, because it is an amazing word, and it communicates a lot to us. But there's a lot of wonderful truth we're going to consider this morning. I'll begin with a question. Are you loving one another? Do you have the capacity to love one another? Um, who are we to love? We're going to answer some of these questions this morning. Let's pray together. Father, bless us now, I pray, as we uh, consider your word and we look into this perfect law of liberty, your word. I pray that it would wash over us this morning, and I pray for cleansing. I pray for encouragement and strength. Thank you for truth. Father, there are people in this room who are hurting, uh, some very deeply, and yet you have called us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, sacrificially, genuinely. And Father, I pray that you would help us build up a conscience in us. Father, you've given us the capacity to love. We actually have a desire to love, and sometimes we don't know how or we believe lies to say that we should be the one being loved. And Father, you do love us. So teach us now, I pray, for your glory and for our sake, I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So now, God is speaking to these believers. They're hurting. They're doubting. They're doubting. 
Have, have we believed in vain? Some husbands, some fathers would have been doubting. Some mothers. Have we led our family in vain to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ only to be cast out of society and persecuted and rejected and hated? They're confused. And he says to them, love one another. You see at the end of verse 22, love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now the word love here, there's a couple of words that we both we say in the same way in English, but there are two different Greek words that are found in verse 22. One is Philadelphia. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Uh, and then you have another word, agapao. And of course, we're more familiar with agapao. The word love, where he says, love one another with a pure heart fervently, it's agapao. And that's the love of choice. The love of choice. The love of the will, it's volitional. The highest level, it's the highest level of love that is humanly possible. It's not the love of feeling. It's not the love of uncontrolled emotion. It's not the love of physical attraction. No, this is agapao, where he says, love one another with a pure heart fervently. It's the love of the will. It's choosing to love one another. It's not loving one another because you are loving me. I'm not to love you because you love me. You're not to love me because I love you. It's, it's not me choosing to, or me loving you because you've bestowed gifts upon me. It's, it's, it's me loving a brother and sister in Christ, whether they're struggling, whether they're obeying the Lord or not whether they're being kind to me or not, whether they appreciate me or not, maybe even speaking evil against me, and yet still I am to love that person. This is a love of the will. And Peter is calling on these believers, and this was so desperately needed, they needed to hear this, he's telling them you need to love one another during times of hurting God wants us to show his love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Another way of putting it would be this. God wants to love us through one another. You know, gathering together as a congregation, being a part of a church, it ought to be a haven for God's people. It ought to be an absolute haven. And I'll go beyond this. I'm not sure if I'm going to get to it this morning, but this is jaw-dropping to the world. It is absolutely peculiar, unusual, and astonishing to the world that a bunch of people from different backgrounds, different levels of income, would want to, would actually love one another. It's, it's mind-boggling to the world. And so God wants us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants us to bless, to be a blessing to one another, to encourage one another through our love, to strengthen and assist the body of Christ. In John 13, in verse 34, the Bible says, John wrote, A new commandment, Jesus said, I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And then he went on to say, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. God measures how 
well we're following Christ by how well we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we love God because he first loved us, and that's the way, that's how God engaged us. He knows that it's normal and natural for human beings to reciprocate. Someone does evil to us, we're prone to do evil back. Someone speaks evil about us, we're we're prone to speak evil back against them. That's that's natural. Everybody does that. All human beings do that. Unsaved people do that. What's not natural is when people love the person who isn't loving them. That's not natural. So loving one another not only benefits the church, but our love for one another is actually overwhelmingly obvious and even attractive to the world because they don't experience this kind of love. In John 17 and verse 21, Jesus said this, that all that they all may be one. He's praying, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. He's praying for this unity, which would be glued together by love, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In other words, God wants the world to see a miracle in the church, within the body of Christ, a diverse group of people, one in Christ, one in his love. That's what God wants the world to see through you and me. So it needs to be obvious to the world that we love one another. Let me ask you, is it obvious to you that we love one another? Is that obvious? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I? Do we love one another? So let's ask just two questions this morning to help us understand and unpackage this verse, that this command that that God has given to us. Number one, question number one, when we were enabled to love, or uh, when were we enabled to love one another supernaturally? When, When did that happen? Well, look at verse 22, the beginning part. He says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. This is another way of describing our salvation experience. You can see it again. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about the day that you and I trusted Christ as our personal savior And we were born again. It's another way of describing being born again. So now, having been born again, we have the ability to love supernaturally, to love as God loves us. Why? Because as Romans 5 and verse 5 tells us, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. You see, Only after we are saved, only after a person is saved, do they have the capability to love the way God loves. Salvation was the moment that we purified our souls. That's the way Peter puts it. The Holy Spirit puts it. It's the moment we obeyed the truth of the gospel. It's the moment we were born again. And in that moment of purging, and in that moment of obedience, and in that moment of new birth, 
everything prior gone. A baby, when they're born in this world, they have no history. Right? Everything is before them. Their new life is before them. And so uh, Jesus used that term, ye must be born again. And of course, he was talking about being born of the Spirit. And, and the old life is in the past, and only a new life is before us. And God, at that moment, gave us the capacity to love. He gave us His Spirit, whereby He is able to love through us. God's given us a new nature. And so it is actually, think about this, natural for a child of God to love supernaturally. It's natural. If you're a born-again child of God, we actually have an inclination by the Spirit of God within us to love one another. It's in you to love one another. But if we're not saved, we are not inclined to love the body of Christ. We can attend services. We can sing songs. We can, uh, we can observe. We can listen to a sermon. But an unsaved person is not inclined to love the body of Christ. It's not in them. They've not been born again. The Spirit of God does not live within them. Now, this is extremely important for a believer to love other believers is natural only because God has put it into our hearts to love one another. In fact, 1 John tells us that a person is not saved if they don't love other believers. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 10, he says this, In this, the children of God are manifest or made obvious, and the children of the devil, they're also made obvious. He goes on to say, Whosoever doeth, uh, doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. It's a bit of a litmus test. Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, I didn't ask if it's easy to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. <laughs> Sometimes we are not easy to love. Would you agree with that? How many husbands here would agree that there are times that we're not easy to love? All right. I could raise my hand to that. Um, Cindy's not here for the nine o'clock service, so you can't look at her. For any facial, um, you, you all can look forward to that. Again, when we get together for the 1030 service uh, in April, you can once again watch my wife for her facial reactions to things I say. But until then, it's, I've gotten a little bit of a break from that. First John 3 goes on to say in verse 11, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's actually, uh, it, it, it reveal, it's revealing. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 9 uh, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, but as touching brotherly love, listen to this, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Paul says, I don't even need to write to you about loving one another because God himself, by his spirit, is leading you to love one another. And the same can be said for us in this room this morning. Uh, so I guess the message is a bit redundant, the sermon that I'm preaching this week and next week, because 
the spirit of God within you is leading you to love one another. Sometimes we resist him, don't we? Is it sin when we resist the spirit? Yes or no? It is. He's leading us to love one another. He's given us the capacity to love one another. So after we're saved, the spirit of God himself is the one teaching us to love our fellow Christians the same way that God loves us. And when our hearts are drawn out to love our fellow believers, it's a symptom that we are the children of God. Now notice in verse 22, the the word that he used, he says that this kind of love is unfeigned, unfeigned. In other words, it's not fake. It's sincere. This kind of love is sincere. It's genuine. It's real. It's not phony. It's not hypocritical. This love is not forced or coerced. This kind of love is not even reciprocal. This, it can be encouraged by, if I love somebody, it can encourage that love back. But sometimes our love for one another is tested by God himself. And he puts us in situations where we don't feel loved. We feel forgotten. We feel unappreciated. And so how should we love our brothers and sisters in Christ when we feel unappreciated? Or when we feel alone? Or when we feel forgotten? And the Spirit of God is leading us to love others even when we don't perceive that we ourselves are being loved by them. This kind of love is not superficial. It's not just simply outward. In Romans 12 and verse 9, we're commanded to love without hypocrisy. You know, there's a lot of shallow love in the world in which we live today. There's a lot of love in the world today, but it's very shallow. Well, I'll love you. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. By the way, that's a great illustration for those of us who are married. Normally in a marriage, there's one that does the scratching and there's the other one that never does the scratching. That's kind of how we want it in the church family, too. Some of us feel that kind of that way sometimes, I think, within a church family. I'm doing all the loving. This is one sided. I'm giving and giving and giving and giving. I'm doing all the scratching. (laughs) Could someone please scratch my back, too? But. But there's a lot of shallow love like that in the world today. There's a lot of superficial love in the world today. It's not very deep. There's a lot of hypocritical love in the world today. I'll love you if you love me. But that is not the love of Christ. And so we're told, first of all, to answer the question, when were we enabled to love? Well, we were enabled to love when God saved us. At that moment, we were enabled to love. We were born again to love God and his family. And I will say this, it is impossible to love God properly, adequately, sincerely without loving his family. You can't do it. You can't do it. So Peter's writing these these heartbroken believers and he's saying to them, you need to love one another. That's, isn't that amazing? I'm not sure if I would have come at 
somebody like that in counseling. They're, 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 they're hurting, they're broken, they're sorrowing. And, uh, and, and instead of coming alongside, now Peter has done that, he's come alongside. He said, I understand your heaviness. It's real, it's for a season. But now he comes at him and he says this, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, you need to love one another. Find somebody to love. Okay, question number two. Not only do we answer the question, when were we enabled to love supernaturally, but secondly, who are we to love? Now, you kind of already know I've given that away, but who are we to love? According to this passage, he says, love one another. Well, who's the one another? Well, you could go back a little bit in verse 22 to the middle part, and he says here that with an unfeigned love, we're to have an unfeigned love of the who? The brethren, the brethren. Now, the word love there, love of the brethren, that's the word, the Greek word Philadelphia. So you do know Greek, right? Philadelphia, you've known that, you've known Greek for a long time. Uh, it, it's this, it's a brotherly love. And again, he's talking about when we were saved, our souls were purified by the Spirit to love the family of God um, with brotherly kindness. We've been saved to love God and in our text, we're told that we're specifically saved to love the family of God. This is one of the reasons why God saved us, so that we'll love one another. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to give an illustration. It's a, an illustration from the Word of God, but I, it's a bit complex, and that goes against the rules of most preaching. Illustrations are supposed to clarify things. Illustration is a little bit complex, so I'm going to give you some background of 1 Corinthians and where they were at, what God was doing in their midst. And uh, But it's going to highlight something for us. It's going to make something very clear to us to what degree God wants us to love one another. Now, before we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, let me set a little bit of the background for you. Corinth. And there was a church in Corinth. It was a seaport city. Uh, there was a lot of uh, trade that came through the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was an extremely and exceedingly wicked city. And even in the culture of that day, other cities around Corinth viewed Corinth as being uh, very, very wicked. In fact, the, the city of Corinth was synonymous with sexual immorality. In fact, they had a term to Corinthianize meant to be involved in sexual immorality. They actually, other other surrounding cities would use the term to Corinthianize, okay? And so this was, can you imagine living in that kind of a city and being a child of God? I think we can. In the day in which we live, I think we can imagine that. The members of the church in Corinth had been saved out of that Corinthian culture. And the Corinthian culture included worshiping false gods in their temples, offering meat, offerings to the idols. The worship often included drunkenness and gluttony. And to the point when I say gluttony, where they would eat and gorge themselves so they could not eat anything else. And then they would go and vomit what they'd eaten and they'd go back to eating it again. And there was this mixture of gluttony and drunkenness and sexual immorality to the point where you had, it was an orgy. There were multiple people involved. 
uh, by the dozens. It was a disgusting, despicable place. And it was customary for the idol worshipers to bring meat offerings to the false gods. That was part of the worship. Uh, but we understand since the false guard, gods weren't real, they didn't eat what was brought to them, right? So they didn't eat the meat. The, the, the priests, the, the, the gods of the, or the, the priests for the false gods, they only ate a little bit of the meat that was brought. And so what did they do with the remainder of the meat, the leftover meat? And what they would do is they would take it and they would take it to the marketplace and they would sell it and they would make money off of it. And the average person in Corinth would go to the market and buy their food. And the meat that they would buy would be meat that had been offered to idols. That was, in a nutshell, that's the picture. And so it was common, right? You'd go to buy your meat, you'd go to the marketplace, and everybody bought their meat in the same place. And it was very likely that the meat you bought was meat that had been involved and involved in this kind of pagan worship. Um, now, this had never been an issue until a person became a Christian. And some saved Corinthians were very bothered by eating the meat that had been offered to the idols. And it bothered them, and, and their conscience, their consciences were pricked. And they struggled, some of them struggled greatly because the meat offered to idols conjured up in their minds what they had used, what they used to participate in. So you can imagine this. They, at times in the past, they would have been bringing meat to offer to the idols. They would have been involved in the drunkenness, in the worship, in the gluttony, in the orgies. They would have been involved in this. And so Paul's talking to these believers about this. They'd been saved out of that life, and they wanted nothing to do with that life once, that the, the life that they had once lived. And so for some, their consciences were struggling and it wouldn't let them buy the meat or even eat the meat that had been offered to idols. Now, I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 7. 1 Corinthians 8, look at verse 7. And I'm going to read down through verse 13. Then we're going to go over to chapter 10. We're going to see to what degree God wants us to love one another. This is going to be an illustration for it. Look at verse 7. He says, how be it, Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing of offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, so some of these believers to eat of the meat offered to idols, it defiled their conscience, it grieved their spirit. Verse 8, he says, but meat commendeth us, it doesn't give us standing with God, it doesn't, it commendeth us not to God. It doesn't give us standing with God, for neither, if we eat, are we the better. If you eat the meat offered to idols, it doesn't make you more spiritual. Neither, he goes on in verse 8, if we eat not, are we the worse. If you don't eat the meat offered to idols, it doesn't make you less spiritual. Verse 9, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak, your brothers and sisters in Christ that are weak. Now, when he says liberty there, when we think of liberty, we think of it as a, a right. We can do this. We have freedom and liberty. The word liberty here is exousia, the Greek word, and it just means authority and power. 
In other words, you have decisions to make. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you have the right to do it. It means you, as a believer, have some decisions to make. And he says, be careful, take heed, lest by this, by any means, this, this authority of yours, this power of yours, this liberty of yours, become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? Now he's saying this. He's saying you may not have a problem with eating the meat that has been offered to idols, that's been part of all of this. Maybe your conscience isn't convicting you about that. But do you know that you may destroy your brother or sister in Christ and their spirituality? Do you know that you might shake them and cause them to sin against the Lord? Verse 11, he goes on, And through, the, through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Another way of saying that would be this, a new believer can be completely turned away from growing spiritually by the inconsistency of, or the compromise of someone, another believer, who thinks that they are mature. So, well, well God, according to verse number 8, um, food doesn't give a standing with God. What the Gentile Christians were eating was not an issue with God. That didn't trouble him. Their conscience, he was concerned about their conscience. But what, what was troubling to God was when one believer was inconsiderate of another believer. When one believer was, would say, you know what, I can do it. I, I can do it. It's fine with me if I do it. No problem. I, I can do it and be fine with God. And God says, I've got a problem with that if you're not considering your fellow brother or sister in Christ. And if you're leading them into sin. Look at verse 12. He says, but when ye sin, so against the brethren <laughs> and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. The Holy Spirit says the problem isn't with the meat. The problem is with your lack of concern and love for your fellow brother and sister in Christ. That's a concern. Paul came to a conclusion in the next verse, in verse 13, he said, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. He came to a conclusion. He said, you know what? I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in Christ to such a degree that if I never eat meat again, it's okay with me because I'm not going to put myself above my brother or sister in Christ. Now look over to chapter 10, and I'm going to bring this illustration to a conclusion Chapter 10, in the same context of this whole topic of meat offered to idols and how a believer should navigate these waters, in verse 27 he says this, If any of them that believe not... Now, what do we call somebody who doesn't believe in Christ? An unbeliever or someone who's not saved. So if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go... Whatsoever is set before you, eat, Paul says, asking no question for conscience sake. Now, what's going on here? 
These Corinthian believers are living in Corinth. And Paul says, now what if an unsaved person, let's say a neighbor, says, Pastor Scott, I want you to, I want you to come over for a feast. And Pastor Scott goes. Why would Pastor Scott go to his neighbors to have dinner with him? Can someone tell me? I can't hear you. Why would these Corinthians go? What's that? He's hungry. That's one reason. What's another reason? Why would we intermingle with unsaved people? The gospel. Thank you, Stephen. Because we love them, right? We love them. God loves them. I hope we're taking time to intermingle with unsaved people. We ought to be. We absolutely must be. And Paul talks about this. He says, so if this person, if your neighbor or an unsaved person invites you, they say, hey, let's get together and let's let's have a good time together. Let's let's talk. Let's get to know one another. You ought to go. And he says, you ought not ask him where they got their meat. (laughs) Because you probably don't want to know. They got it on a discount. And it's probably meat offered to idols. But you know what? You're going to go, and for the sake of the gospel, you're going to be kind and loving and gracious. You're not going to walk into an unsafe person's house and say, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this. I don't know why you listen to that. You watch what? Well, I could never. No, you're not going to do that because you're showing them the love of Christ. You remember Christ, by the way, was condemned by the Pharisees. Do you remember this? He, he eats with publicans and sinners. We're not to be like the Pharisees. So this is consistent with what Christ did. And Paul says you ought to go and eat. But notice the next verse in verse 28. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols. Now who would say that? Based upon what I read in chapter 8, who would say that? Who would be concerned about that? A weaker brother, a born again brother in Christ. Who can remember being there. Who can remember partaking in those those events and their conscience is grieved. Now, now here we got this person, Pastor Scott, you're in a difficult situation. Are you going to offend the unsaved person? Or are you going to offend your brother in Christ? Now, who should we be willing to offend? Who should we not offend at any cost? Look at the verse. He says, this is offered in sacrifice and idols. He says, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake. Do I offend the unbeliever or do I offend the believer? Common sense might suggest that we should offend the, the believer. Go ahead and eat the meat so we don't offend the unbeliever in order that he might be saved. But that is exactly wrong. Paul says, don't eat it for conscience sake of the one who informed you. In other words, offend the unbeliever before you offend the believer. Why? Because you love God. And because you love his family. And because you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it brings us back to 1 Peter in our text. Because when you were saved, God gave you a new nature. And he gave to you the ability, the desire, 
this natural desire to love unnaturally or to love supernaturally. And you love your brother and sister in Christ and you don't want to offend one of God's children. And the unbeliever is going to see this. And maybe he's going to be offended. You know what? I'm sorry. We're not going to be able to eat of this. And he goes away. He's a little offended by that. But you know what he's going to see? He's going to see our love for one another. And it makes our faith to him attractive. It's amazing to him. You won't offend. You love your brother so much you won't offend him. You love the family of God so much you won't offend them. You love your fam- the family of God so much that you'll put them before you, before you, your own needs and your own desires. John 13 and verse 34, the Bible says, Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said, love one another. You can go back to 1 Peter. 1 John 3 and verse 16, he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God expects us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, you're close by to that if you want to look at it. 1 John 3 and verse 17, he says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, How dwelleth the love of God in him? And the answer is, it's not dwelling there. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see, we're to love our brothers in Christ sacrificially. Jesus said it this way in John 15. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And it's in the context of love one another. Peter loved John. John loved Mark. Mark loved Matthew. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love the local church. Why? Because everybody in the local church is perfect. No. Because we never offend one another. No. Because everything is run impeccably well. No. Because our brothers and sisters in Christ never sin. No, we love one another because God has put it into our hearts to love one another. And he is teaching us to love one another. And his word commands us to love one another. And a a sacrificial agapao, a love of the will, volitional, led of the spirit, but volitional, submitting to the spirit of God to love one another. To love one another when they don't love us back. No, God loves us sacrificially, and his plan to his, to, is to love his children through his children. And by the word, and I'll, I will, we'll draw this to a conclusion, but a loving church is peculiar to the world. It's jaw-dropping. The attraction of the church is love. It's not our sign. It's not our property. It's not the sermons. It's not our music. What amazes what the world can't comprehend is how we love one another and that we love one another and that we keep loving one another. It's something they long for. It's something they don't know how to do. 
is something that they haven't experienced. And when they see it, it's mind-boggling. They can't put it into words what they're seeing. And what is it? It's the love of God in us. It's the love of Christ in us. It's supernatural. You know, I think, and mistakenly so, that some think that the attraction of the church is its ability to to develop evangelistic technique. How to talk someone into being saved. It's like selling a used car. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe what's attractive, what makes a church attractive is using clever methods or to generate excitement by events in order to attract unbelievers. The most attractive, the most powerful attraction to the church is when a church loves one another. And you know what? An unsaved person could see a church like that and as they're considering all things, the, the truths of the gospel and this local church assembly of believers, they might surmise in their minds to be a part of something like that. What must it be like? These people love one another and they're not exclusive. We love as God loves in that sense. We love enough to give and to go and to give the gospel and to go as Paul talked to the Corinthian church about you go. You be kind, you be gracious, you eat of it. But you know what? It comes down to offending my brother in Christ or offending the world. I'm not going to offend my brother in Christ because I love him too much. And it's actually attractive to the world. So how do we show our love for one another? Well, encourage one another, give to one another, be faithful to one another, Gather together with one another. Exhort one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. Pray for one another. Pray with one another. Be gracious to one another. Be merciful to one another. Suffer long with one another. Be faithful to one another. Consider one another. Forgive one another. And put the needs of one another before our own needs. So who are we to love? We're to love one another. We live in a day of church hopping. We live in a day of what do they have to offer me? I'm not getting anything. We're to love one another. Yesterday, there was a young couple in the, in the church. They were moving from Duran to Clio. And... Uh, the husband got a hold of me earlier in the week. He said, hey, pastor, I'm moving. Hey, if you're available, you can help. Saturdays are often a big work day for me in sermon preparation. And so immediately I felt some stress. <sighs> and I was reminded, though, of when we moved up into this area. I was reminded of when brothers and sisters in Christ from Trinity Baptist Church reached out to our family when I was just a young boy at the age of eight. And they loved our family. And it made me think of them, mom and dad, about what they would have, they would have been leaving, some of the men would have been 
saying goodbye to their wives to come over to our house and work on our house and work with us. There were some sacrifices that they would have had to make to, to love our family. And I watched them love our family time and time and time again. I took uh, Ian and Tori with me to help this young couple move yesterday morning. We worked from like 9 to about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And as we were, we packed up my truck and we drove to Clio and then back to Duran and then back to Clio. So it gave Tori and Ian and I some time to talk. Neither one of them were overly excited about getting up early on Saturday morning and foregoing mom's pancake breakfast in uh, half the day in pajamas to go And I remember Ian said, who are we helping again? I said their names. And and then I shared a little bit about how there were people in the church who reached out and helped my family when I was a child. And I told them that this is a tremendous privilege to, to encourage them. You know, they're in the process of moving. They're not even, they're not moved in. They're not moved out. They're in, in between. Nothing. Where is anything at? You've been there, right? This is an opportunity for us to help bear their burden and to love them. I talked about, of course, I'd been studying this passage, how God's put it in our hearts to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is one of the greatest privileges and one of the greatest ways that we can ever serve God in our lives. And we had a great day together. It really was. I think if you talk to Ian or Tori, they'd say it was a great day. It was a wonderful day. The younger two were, were, were sure that I had taken them to McDonald's, but I didn't. It is a privilege to love one another. And church, you've loved one another. God's put it in your hearts to love one another. And I'm exhorting you to keep loving one another. Pour yourself out. Esteem the needs of others greater than your own and love one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'll take these words. I pray they've been an encouragement to us. There's been some conviction, too. Uh, Father, at times in my own life, I want to live for me. I want to put my needs at the forefront. And yet you've given me this call to love others and specifically to love the body of Christ. Father, I pray for Trinity Baptist Church, that we would be known for loving you and loving one another. That's going to require a lot of forgiveness over the years. It's going to require us to suffer long with one another over the years. It's going to require for us to be faithful and to be gracious and full of mercy. It's going to require Christ-likeness. Lord, I'm asking that this would be so. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet and we'll sing.